Welcome to the Metaphoricist Magazine podcast, your home for beautifully made speculative fiction. The magazine is edited by B. Morris Allen, and I'm your host, Matt Gomez. This week's story is The Bookseller of Mars by Gabby Brogan. Gabby Brogan was raised in the UK and Italy on a steady diet of pasta and science fiction. Usually based in Amsterdam, she's now traveling and working from the road as a freelance copywriter. Whenever she can, she scribbles poetry and fiction, practices yoga, and goes out to explore. Let's jump in. I am where the hurt people go. Not the crying, soft, gentle people. I'm not sure there are any of those left. No, I am where the killers turn when the buried piece of them that is still human reaches out, yearning for the light. Now there are two killers at my door. Boy children. I see them on the crackly intercom screen in my kitchen, the red desert stretching out behind them. I will let them in, I'm sure. I always do. Guns stay outside, I call through the mic. They turn to each other and whisper. They look about 14 or 15, the age I was when I first came to Mars over a decade ago, a filthy, scared teenage girl bundled onto a starship along with the rest of the refugees from Earth. Originally, 30,000 of the global elite were planned for those starships, but when society fell to floods, fire, and disease, Space Corp took whoever could make it to the launch site in burning California. Beggars can't be choosers during the apocalypse. The day we landed, I filed out of the ship into the sterile light of the Mars station with the other aching, stinking survivors. We took gear from metal boxes as an armed group of Space Corp employees watched over us. The most precious item was a metal cube the size of my fist. If I pressed the button, it would pop open to the size of a cargo container, a ready-made home for the elite's life on Mars. Temperature controlled, CO2 to oxygen conversion, a greenhouse for food and a drill bug to bore down into Martian rock for water. That cargo container is where I find myself now, all these years later, hidden under an outcrop of rock on the edge of the desert, far from the violence and squalor of the settlements. We're not leaving our gun, calls the blonde kid on my screen. Then you aren't coming in. On Mars, everyone's a killer. The kid kicks the ground, sending up a cloud of ochre dust. You don't understand. It's Jay. He gestures to the boy next to him. His regulator's beeping. I'm sorry, I say. That's a real problem for Jay. If his regulator is beeping, he doesn't have long. That vital metal chip sits in your nostril, creating a bubble of oxygen and pressure that stops your blood from boiling in the Martian atmosphere. Beeping means breaking. Fuck, says the blonde. He turns to Jay and motions to put the gun on the ground. Jay shakes his head and grips it tighter. I move a plant's green tendril to hit the intercom button again. I'm alone here if it makes you feel better. And I don't have a gun. Within easy reach. I look at the stack of books next to my bed. A pistol sits on top. The blonde grabs Jay's shoulders, pleading. But the other boy simply stares into the intercom camera and holds the gun to his chest. He'd rather die than come into my house unarmed? Jesus. Who knows what they've been through? I groan. This kid is about to die on my doorstep because of his own stubbornness. I've buried bodies in the rocky ground before, but none this young. Pushing the button, I open my cargo container's airlock. The boys whip their heads around and scramble in, the door slamming down after them. 
It floods with air and repressurizes. On my airlock monitor, I see Jay breathing deeply. Tears stream down the blonde's cheeks through the red dust. He scoops Jay into a ferocious hug, gripping his silver jacket so hard I think it might rip. The kids hold each other like that until I press the button to open the door to my home. They separate, tense and defensive, hurt wolf pups ready to bite. Jay raises the gun, but his hands are shaky, uncertain. That was pretty fucking stupid, I say. Put the gun down. I'm not going to hurt you. The blonde wipes his tears. Jay lowers the gun. That's better. Martian-born kids. They're slimmer, muscles softer than mine were, growing up on Earth. They walk with a graceful float in their step, no muscle memory of Earth's gravity weighing down their every move. They remind me of birds, hollow bones. Jay is short, on the childish side of his teen years, with red-brown skin like the Martian dust. His eyes are honey. His blonde friend is so pale I can see his blue veins. He's taller than Jay, and his wide eyes dart around my home. I gesture for them to sit at the scrap metal table. They do, and Jay lays the gun by his feet. I'm Melanie. Tea? Uh, yes please, says the blonde. I'm Ben. I busy myself over at the sink, filling a pot with water and setting it on the thermal pad to heat. So, what are two kids doing out in the Martian desert with a failing regulator? I scoop dried herbs into three mesh metal balls and set each in a mug. Got lost on a school trip, says Ben. We were trying to walk back to our settlement when the beeping started. Bookseller is the only thing on the map in this part of the desert. We knew you were our only hope for getting air. I snort. I didn't know I was a feature on any maps. Maps of Mars are rarely accurate anyway, often scrawled on wheat husk paper after a long journey. But if these boys go to school, it means they're from the Space Corp settlement, the only place with the resources to build any real infrastructure, the most organized settlement we have, and the most vicious. Perhaps they have half-decent maps. What they definitely don't have, however, is school trips. These boys are liars and most likely runaways. Aren't you lucky you managed to find me? I feel the cold tip of a gun at my back. Damn. Why'd you tell us you were alone? Asks Jay. I see two plates stacked up there on your drying rack. Two cups. Two forks. You got a boyfriend hiding here? I flick a look at my drying rack. Girlfriend, I say. And no, she's gone. Just a few days ago. I... I didn't have the heart to put it all away yet, if you must know. On Mars, you get used to reading the truth in someone's voice. I guess he hears mine. Oh. The gun moves away from my back. She isn't dead. I can't stand for this kid's sympathy to be wasted on the idea of Kara. Just gone. Apparently, life in a settlement is more interesting than here surrounded by badly written books. I slam the T's down and slump into my seat. Jay and Ben watch me warily. Now, if you're quite done threatening me, maybe we can enjoy this tea. Ben kicks Jay under the table. Uh, yeah. Sorry, Jay manages. So, uh, you make all this yourself? Ben gestures around my cargo container home. Masters of conversation, these two. I look around. He doesn't mean the greenhouse extension, the shelves, or the tins of preserved foods, which, as a matter of fact, I did make myself. He means the towers of books that line every wall. 
They don't call me the bookseller for nothing, I shrug. How'd you do all this? A spark of wonder lights Ben's blue eyes. Now, even in my lonely, heartbroken state, I'm not going to destroy what might be the only spark of wonder currently on Mars. I sigh. After the starships landed, everyone in the settlement started acting out the sequel to the earthly apocalypse. Real Mad Max shit. I ran out here into the desert alone and popped my cargo container. Raised myself until I got an infected cut and had to venture back into a settlement to trade my food for medicine. While I was there, I met a guy who'd pulp wheat husks and turn it into paper. I came back and traded all my preserves for five notebooks. That's a bad trade, says Ben. I know, I snort, but I wasn't in the healthiest state of mind. Anyway, I started by rewriting the classics, from memory, as well as I could. Everything I'd been studying in school on Earth. Some part of me knew they were worth saving, and I'm glad I did. They sold first when I went back to the settlement to trade. Then, people started visiting me, threatening me, demanding I write the books they'd left behind. Soon, they realized they'd get better stories if they were kinder. Creativity can't exactly flourish at gunpoint. They'd wanted the story so desperately. You see, when your home is burning or filled with your dying family, you don't think to bring your favorite book or e-reader as you escape. You just get your weapon and get yourself to the launch site by any means necessary. And on Mars, there's no infrastructure to build phones or TVs. Our exodus from Earth meant we left all our stories behind. People told me plots and I spun them into books. And now, that's all I do. Rewriting shittier versions of the books we had on Earth. And it's safe here? Asks Ben. Settlers don't ever raid you? I rewrote The Handmaid's Tale for the leader of a raider gang a while back. It's been particularly quiet since then. Maybe she put in a good word for me. I sip my tea. Indeed, my customers are hard, bitter people. Did you ever see those pictures of a fox or a crocodile or a bear? Some creature that is all claws and bite, with a butterfly landing on their nose? They used to put those pictures in cheap yearly calendars. Anyways, the biter closes their eyes and they let the butterfly land, because behind the claws there's a soft, warm creature that just wants a nap in the sun. In my little cargo container, killers rest and tell me about their favorite books. They ask me to write a story. And I do. Because sometimes, I see the horror and the haunt slip away, just for a moment. So, basically, you just hide out here and sell stories to the dangerous assholes who come through? Asks Jay. I... Ouch. Better than being stranded in the desert on a school trip. Or are you running away from Space Corp? Jay's hand drifts down to his gun. Hands where I can see them, or I won't be fixing that regulator of yours. His hand shoots back to his lap. You can fix it? I nod. Put your gun up there, next to mine, on top of that stack of books. Jay waits for a consenting look from Ben, and then stands, placing the gun next to mine. Much better. Now, give me your regulator. He fishes it out of his nose, wipes it on his trousers, and sets it on the table. Right. I'll get to it. You guys can wait over there. I gesture to the pile of pillows and blankets that serves as my sofa. I tell them they can help themselves to whatever food or books they want, as long as they're quiet. They busy themselves raiding my shelves. Ben munches on some dried carrot chips I made last week. 
Jay stares out the kitchen window at that endless red ocean. I open my box of tools, grab the magnifying glass, and get to work. But a few minutes in, I lean back in my chair. Who made this regulator? I ask. Does it matter? Jay snaps. Kind of. It's a piece of shit. It's more than that. This regulator isn't like the one I took from the Space Corp boxes when I landed, built to last a lifetime. It's flimsy, designed to break after a few days. Why would anyone make this? Nothing on Mars is disposable. Every scrap we have is precious, used carefully, made for a reason. Sending someone out with this is a death sentence. Can you fix it, though? asks Jay. I don't know. It's going to take me a little longer. Ben sat up. How much longer? We, uh, we need to get moving soon. Why? Someone coming after you? He looks at the carrot chips in his hand. Fine, don't tell me. But I need at least a day or two on this. Shit. Up to you. The boys whisper to each other in the corner. We can't pay you for fixing the regulator. Or for letting us stay while we do, says Jay finally. Oh. On Mars, nothing is free. Then you can help out here. The greenhouse needs fixing up and I've been meaning to repair the shelves. The boys nod, relieved. I set them up with their tasks and then spend a few hours tinkering with the regulator. In the evening, I warm up some soup for dinner and they sit on the blankets, flipping through my handwritten books and asking questions. It feels good to speak to someone again. The next morning, I go back to work on the regulator. The Martian time slips by, quiet and red. To kill a mockingbird, asks Ben in the afternoon. What is it, like a guide? Sure, it's a guide, but not one to do with birds, I say. Jay looks up from the old drill bug he's trying to fix. I don't get it, says Ben. Sit and read it and you will, I say. It's long, but it's worth it. Books are more nourishing than you know. Jay and Ben share a look. A hint of a laugh. A twist of embarrassment on my behalf. Not quite an eye roll, but nearly. I smile. My little brother and I shared that exact look about the nearest, clueless adult countless times. He didn't make it past the first wave of sickness back on Earth. I shake my head. Take it. Ben's eyebrows shoot up and he looks at Jay. Jay smiles. Well, thanks. Ben holds it gentler now, flipping softly through the pages. That book is worth three weeks of food in a trade. I can practically see Kara in the corner, chastising me about the economic irresponsibility. Well, she isn't here. Ben reads my rehashed version of To Kill a Mockingbird, and I watch him out of the corner of my eye. It's one of the few books with words I know I've written right. The lady who commissioned the first copy had the text tattooed on her shoulder. I wanted you to see what real courage is, instead of getting the idea that courage is a man with a gun in his hand. It's when you know you're licked before you begin, but you begin anyway, and see it through no matter what. I always liked that quote. The next day, the intercom buzzes like a yellow jacket. I flick a look toward the screen. Now. These are the kinds of guests I'm used to. A man and a woman stand tall, decked out in cobbled-together desert gear and heavy-duty boots. Their faces are obscured by rags, 
Guns hang from their shoulders and grenades from their belts. Raiders or Space Corp, I can't tell you. All the same anyway. Grizzly bears. Good morning, I say over the intercom. You've reached the bookseller. You seen two boys out here? Hard to say. Who are you? Retrievers, from the Space Corp school. Those two students killed a member of staff and ran away. We've come to ensure they receive proper punishment. Shit. I take my hand off the intercom and spin towards Ben and Jay. Is that true? I don't want trouble. Ben shakes his head. Jay nods. We each killed a guy, says Jay. He talks fast like he can see I'm spooked. But they made us as part of our training. That's why we ran away. Training? It's not a school. They're training kids as soldiers and planning to take over the other settlements by force and form a proper country, led by them. They haven't come to punish us. They want to stop the truth from getting out before they're ready. This is huge. Finally making the settlements into one city, united, makes sense. Resources could be shared. A society could be built. Well, that's what logic says. In practice, the one settlement that Space Corp already runs is brutal, with settlers fighting over scraps from the people at the top. A takeover is going to be violent. And bloody. The intercom buzzes again. Bookseller, says the man on the intercom. Did you see the boys? I press the mic. Ben's hand twitches on to kill a mockingbird. Yes, I say. I have seen the boys. Jay scrambles to grab his gun. They passed through here a few days ago and left. Said they were heading to the northern settlement. One of them had a broken regulator. I doubt they'll have made it far. The man and woman nod. There is no surprise to them. They know those regulators don't last. So you just let them go, says the woman. Obviously. I don't need two more mouths to feed. If they want to get themselves killed in the desert, that's on them. The man and woman scuff around in the dust, whispering to one another. On behalf of Space Corp, we're requesting entry to your home bookseller. To trade for supplies, says the man. I've got nothing to trade but books. That'll do. He's clearly not coming in for books. I consider my options. Guns stay outside. That's my policy. On the little screen, the man nods and hands his gun to the woman. She takes a few steps back, looking at the perimeter of my house. No doubt making sure no figures escape as her colleague searches inside. Behind me, Ben and Jay's panic whispers fill the air. I usher them under my bed and pass them my pistol. Their wide-eyed faces disappear as I throw a blanket over the bed. Pushing the button, I open the airlock and the man walks in. It repressurizes. It's not ideal. If he finds them, then what? Can I feasibly say that I didn't know they were there? Another press of a button, and the man is in my home. He lowers his mouth rag. His face is pitted and scarred, like the surface of our new home. I'll take a look around now, he says. He's done us both a favor by dropping the pretense. Go ahead, I say. He walks along the towers of books, and I look at my home of over a decade with fresh eyes. Not many hiding spots. The bed is glaringly obvious. The man drops to his knees to check out the entrance to the greenhouse. He stands and cocks his head, reading the spine of a book on a precarious stack. My rendition of The Catcher in the Rye. Interested? I ask. 
No, he says. I've heard your prices. I'm not in the market to waste three weeks worth of food on a book. His eyes linger on it, though. Well, they take me a long time to write. You read this one back on Earth? Uh, yeah. As a matter of fact, I did. Go on, then. What did you do? Before? Office guy? He considers me. I was a teacher in New York, he says finally. Math. Always liked that book, though. Bet it's a bit different now, working at Space Corp. His face clouds over and he looks away. Wrong thing to say. Don't remind killers of what they are. I've become too used to the truthful simplicity of my conversations with the boys. This feels like a deadly chess match that I'm being forced to play once again. His eyes catch on the three mugs on that damn drying rack. The plates. He sighs and walks towards the bed. Don't you miss stories? I ask. He turns back. Let me just get this over with, lady. I ignore him. There's no TV here. No cinema. I think that's why people like my books. Medicine for the mind. A way to get lost. He blinks. More people need a mental escape on Mars than they're willing to admit. If only there were a way for you to procure a story without having to trade your hard-earned food. I take Catcher and the Rye off the stack of books and hold it out to him. His face is a mirror image of Ben's when I gave him to kill a mockingbird. On Mars, you only own what you need to survive. Slowly, he reaches out to take the book. He holds it in both hands, eyes roving over Kara's illustration on the cover. It's beautiful, like everything else she created. He flips open the first page, gently. So, have you found what you're looking for? Perhaps. His eyes flick to the bed again. What's the price for two kids' lives? Take another, I say, for the road. He spins around and looks at the stack of books next to him. Percy Jackson and the Olympians. He pulls it out quickly and stuffs both books into the inside of his jacket pocket. My students used to love Percy Jackson, he says, back on Earth. That's the thing about my sanctuary. Even killers have an inner child, and stories help them find their way back out. I bet, I say, and indicate the airlock. He nods. I push the button, and he walks out into the Martian desert. I rush to the intercom screen. Outside, he gestures, talking to his colleague. She questions him. He shrugs. She tips her head, and they kick around in the dust for a while. Then, they turn and go. My hands are shaking. White. You can come out, I say. The boys scramble out from under the bed. Ben runs at me and hugs me. Jay hovers behind. Thank you, he says. Ben lets me go, and I exhale all the tension. To think, Kara left because of how quiet life was here with me. How slow. We collapse at the table. So, you guys ran away from Space Corp. No destination in mind? Not exactly, says Jay. A few weeks ago, these girls from the year above broke into the Space Corp offices. They read through a bunch of documents. Plans for the new country, breakthroughs in terraforming. The girls stole the papers and a bunch of supplies, then ran away to start a new settlement. A hidden one for Martian kids where we can try to build something better. And you're going to follow them. How do you know the regulators didn't break? These girls are smart. 
Their regulators didn't break. Do you even know where they are? They've gone to the Western Mountain. Jay's face looks young, hopeful. I consider these two Martian kids. They aren't killers. They don't have claws and fangs. Maybe they're the butterflies on the predator's nose. Or I'm confusing my metaphors. I said they were hollow bone birds, right? Either way, they are a thing with wings. And they see a future on Mars. One away from the suffering and the violence. Well, then I'd best get that regulator fixed up for you, I say. The boys spend the evening browsing my shelves while I tinker and process the impending doom of a space corp takeover. An unfamiliar noise fills my home. I look up. It's the boys laughing. They're reading bits of a book to one another, acting out scenes with big, exaggerated movements. I tilt my head. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. How strange to hear laughter. Not the broken, half-hearted chuckle of a killer. Not the condescending bark of a lover who sick to death of my company. No. Laughter like in a family's home. I squeeze my eyes shut against the wave of unwanted emotion and the tears that threaten to follow. What is wrong with me? If I didn't know better, I'd say I didn't want the boys to go. The next morning, after breakfast, I spend a final few hours on the regulator. I reinforce bins, too, for good measure. All right, I say. Your regulators are ready. Time to go. Quick. Why quick? asks Jay, eyes darting, back on alert. I'm kicking you out. And myself, too. You're kicking yourself out? I'm coming with you. I try to sound confident, like when I used to lead my little brother in the games we played. You need supplies and a plan if you're going to make it west. I can provide at least a part of that. Anyway, this hidden settlement will need books. I clamp my lips shut against the confession that threatens to follow. That I can't stand to write here alone again, speaking only to killers and characters. That Space Corp won't allow a writer to live unmanaged, out in the desert alone. That one of their retrievers knows about me, harboring two fugitives, and a bribe only lasts so long. Ben tilts his head, looking at me with squinted eyes, like he hears my thoughts. He looks at Jay. You're right, says Jay. The new settlement will need books. I hear they're very nourishing. I exhale. We spend the day packing supplies and planning our route. Finally, when we're ready, we insert our regulators. Then, we step out into the light of that faraway sun. Okay, I say. Let's go. We walk under the rocky outcropping and out towards the vast western horizon. I turn and look back at the little cargo container that has been my world ever since I escaped Earth. My refuge, filled with other people's stories. Now, it's time to write my own. That was The Bookseller of Mars by Gabby Brogan. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you'd leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to us on. Or, better yet, share the magazine and podcast with a friend. If you'd like to listen to more speculative fiction, visit us online at magazine.metaphoricist.com or on Twitter at MetaphoricistMag. Metaphoricist Mag.